0: Is anyone else in this room uh, sick and tired of bad news? If you're with me on this, on the count of three, say I'm sick and and tired of bad news. One, two, three. I'm sick and tired of bad news. I believe you. I'm sick of it. I just want to put my hands over my ears sometimes. La, 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 la. The political game, for example, has become so negative that you'd think we're ready to go to war with our neighbors and our family over differences of opinion. Oh, that could never happen in this country. (laughs) Media coverage, it's all virtually all bad news. It's often infuriating because that's what makes people click and watch and comment and forward and share and fight. And start the cycle up again the next day. Acts of extreme terror around the world are practically a daily occurrence now. Sometimes it feels like the world is falling apart. And of course, in reality, it is. Nearly every person I know has a variety of health problems. Do you realize that every, every single one of us has all kinds of stuff wrong with our bodies? Uh, It's depressing. And that's not to mention the emotional and and mental issues that most people seem to have. Maybe I should say all, it seems like. Most of you here this morning (laughs) have problems. No offense. (laughs) you got big problems. You have addiction problems, marriage problems, sin problems, job problems, debt problems, trouble, 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 trouble. The world is broken, government is broken, people are broken, families are broken, churches are broken. So fine, I've admitted all of that. But I also wanna say that I don't think continuing to dwell on the brokenness of everything accomplishes anything. And so I'm suggesting that we turn a corner. Right now, today, we need to turn a corner and we need to focus on something besides what is wrong. Can I have an amen? amen? Okay. But how can we do that? <clears throat> I have a plan. What we really need to do is this. We need to discover real joy. That sounded very Missourian. Real. Real joy. Every once in a while that accent just slips in there. Some of you are like, it's always there. I, I don't hear it. But we need to discover real joy. Some of us need to rediscover joy and others need to discover joy for the first time. Joy is a treasure that some have lost and others never found in the first place. For Christians, as we attempt to follow Christ in this world, it is so easy to forget about joy. As if it were not all that important. You know what I mean? I know I'm guilty of leaving joy in the dust. I'm not sure I've thought about making joy my goal in a long time. But the Bible actually leads me to seek joy from the Lord, not to assume joy is unavailable. And the Bible says the joy of the Lord ought to be my strength. When did I forget about joy that runs deeper than getting what I want or a sunshiny day? I don't know, but it's time to remember. And I sincerely doubt I'm the only one in this room who needs the reminder. It's like Oh yeah, joy. Forgot about that part of being a Christian. Oops. Over the next few weeks, we're going to discover at least four secrets to experiencing real joy in our lives. All of these secrets will be taken from the book of Philippians, which we could easily call the joy book of the Bible. Philippians has always been one of my favorite books to read. Oddly, it was written by a guy who was chained up in a dungeon as he wrote it. <clears throat> which strengthens the biggest point of the book, that real joy is utterly independent of circumstance. Life doesn't get much worse than being chained up to a guard on a dirt floor in a cold, dark dungeon with no lawyer. That was the situation for the Apostle Paul, and God used him in that circumstance, and at that very time, to write the best call to joy that has ever been written, the letter to the church at Philippi. Today's message is simply an introduction to the series. I don't even have points today, if you can believe it. Next week, we'll dig into the text of Philippians, but today we're, we're just going to get the ball rolling, try to get the big picture of the biblical concept of joy. So biblically speaking, what is joy? Most people basically equate joy with happiness, but in the Bible, happiness and joy are completely different concepts. You've probably heard this before, but there really is a huge difference between happiness and joy. I'm not necessarily talking about Webster's definition of these words, but when it comes to what the Bible says about joy, we can see that happiness is not the same thing at all. Happiness is based on happenings, but joy is found in God. Happiness happens sometimes, but joy is always available. Happiness often depends on prosperity, but joy is often an attribute of the poor. Happiness is an emotional response, but joy can bring emotional control. Happiness is a never-ending pursuit, but joy is a gift given by God. Happiness cannot bring you joy, but joy can bring you happiness. And the point of this discussion is not simply to make sure our definitions are correct, but rather to comprehend that there is this thing to be had called joy. And it is something you want to have in your life, even though the world we live in absolutely does not understand what it is. The unbelieving world actually um, functions as if joy does not exist. It's true. They get happiness, but not joy. They don't even know what it means to have joy. Pastor, are you saying that unbelievers can't experience joy? That is exactly what I'm saying. According to Galatians 5, joy is one of the fruits that comes into the life of the believer through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And we know that it is by faith in Christ that anyone receives the Spirit. By the way, we need to stop underselling Christianity we're so afraid of offending people that we don't even tell them what we have to offer. Sometimes we act like there's nothing all that great about being a Christian. Well, I'm here to tell you that if you, if you, if you want real joy, you're going to need to come to Christ to get it. Oh, come on, pastor. You, surely you don't want to go on record as saying that people who don't know Jesus can't be joyful. Look, the problem you're having with this is because you're still basically equating joy with happiness or an emotional state of well-being. And my point is that joy, the joy spoken of in Scripture, is something holy other than that. Unbelievers can be happy, sure. But by definition, they cannot have biblical joy. Why? Because joy comes from God and joy comes specifically through the Holy Spirit received by grace through faith in Christ. I'm telling you that there is a thing called a joy in the Bible, something the unbelieving world does not know about, nor have they ever experienced it, and sadly, it is something many Christians have never fully embraced or understood either, because all too often believers do not live in the fullness of what Jesus earned for us on the cross. Many Christians have moments of joy, but not a consistency of joy. How quickly we forget the, the awesomeness of living with joy. And so we settle. What do we settle for? We settle for happiness at best. And unhappiness at worst. Even though the consistent joy of the Lord is right there inside of us. Through our connection to the Holy Spirit. Again, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Part of the reason we forget about Joy is that we still live in the world and we are so greatly influenced by it. Our culture, the world, constantly proclaims to us that happiness is what we really want. If there's one thing that our society constantly affirms, it is the pursuit of the things we think will make us happy. But take note that the concept of real lasting joy finds no voice at all in our world. World had truly understood joy, they would have never used the word as a label for dish soap. <laughs> However lemony fresh it may be. Believe it or not, using this product will not give you joy. News flash there's not a single commercial that will tell you how to get joy. Not really. Think about it. The world may occasionally use the word joy, but when it does, it uses it as a synonym for happiness. I'll tell you right now that if you want to give me a Shelby GT500 Mustang, you will make me very, very happy. At least for a little while, maybe until I get the insurance bill. Or until everyone wants to know how the pastor can afford such a car. Yes, the world offers certain paths to momentary happiness, but the world has absolutely no understanding of real joy. So the question is, what do you really want? I mean, really, will you settle for temporary happiness or will you tap into the eternal joy that's already available with God? If you listen mostly to to the messages of the world, you won't even know to desire joy. You'll be so wrapped up in pursuing happiness that you won't know to miss the joy you could have had. Before you know it, you'll have wasted half your life. Don't believe me? Ask anyone with gray hair. In my dad's case, you could ask him anyway. He's like 73, and he still doesn't have gray hair. I have as much gray hair as my dad. It's ridiculous. (laughs) You get the idea. Because they found out. Chasing after happiness is like trying to catch the wind. I've mentioned that happiness is affected by circumstance while joy, endu- joy endures regardless of circumstance. So let's think about this in the context of the worst circumstance humans ever experience. That of death and dying. It is impossible for an unbeliever to maintain a spirit of rejoicing even while losing a loved one in death. Or while dying themselves. Those who do not have the Spirit of God received through faith in Christ cannot fathom the notion of joy in the face of suffering or death. And as a pastor has performed many funerals, uh, and, and quite a few for, for families who did not know Jesus, I can tell you there's no joy in them. The difference is profound. I have seen joy among believing families, even after losing someone suddenly and tragically. Not in every moment, of course, but interspersed between moments of grief. I've I've even seen laughter at times when you'd have expected tears. And when it comes to the believer who's dying herself, I have seen joy in her eyes. Even as she knew death was near. I've seen joy in the eyes of the dying but only in the eyes of those who had the Spirit through faith in Christ. I do not mean to say that those believing individuals or families facing death were not sad at certain points, nor do I mean that they did not mourn. Oh, rest assured, we are not happy to die, and we're not happy to lose someone we love in death. But I have nonetheless seen joy from believers in both instances. Where do believers get this kind of joy? from God. Only from God. The idea of joy that comes from God and is unquenchable by circumstance is a concept that permeates all of Scripture. The Bible is saturated with this concept of unquenchable joy. In the Old Testament, joy was often linked to the idea of hope for future salvation, that it was coming. Hope for the Messiah and for the deliverance that was promised In the Lord, for instance, from Isaiah 65, starting with verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. This is a prophetic reference to what we commonly refer to as heaven or paradise. In the Old Testament, joy was often linked to hope for a heavenly future. Hold on, my child. Joy comes in the morning, as Psalm 30, verse 5 puts it. According to the Bible, heaven is a joyful place. And passages like the one we just read remind us that we can actually practice joy even in the dark of night because we know eternal joy is coming. In the heavenly kingdom. It's another major difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is all about the now. And if if the now cannot be what we want, we are not happy. But joy looks to the promises of God. Even those as yet unfulfilled. He is a good father. And his plans for us are ultimately good. We learn from the Old Testament of the Bible that joy in the now often only comes by resting in the joy of the future. But in the New Testament, the part of the Bible written after Jesus came, joy is often spoken of in a slightly different way. New Testament joy is linked to the future, but it also looks back to the past, even to Christ's death and resurrection. Old Testament joy was about looking forward to the promises of God. New Testament joy includes that. But also looks back to what Jesus already did. In fact, New Testament joy often includes a reference to the cross. Here's an example from the book of Hebrews. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Because of joy, Jesus endured the cross. Doesn't that seem a little strange when you remember that the cross is a torture device? But the fact is that joy is almost always linked to suffering in the New Testament. Seldom is joy or rejoicing mentioned alongside happy circumstances in the Bible. Rather, we read about joy that only comes bubbling up in the midst of the toughest times. For instance, let's look through a window into the story of the early church. From the book of Acts, Stephen who was full of the Spirit through faith in Christ, had had just been martyred for preaching the gospel. They had stoned him to death in the street, even while he looked up to heaven with joy that he he was about to get there. And and after that, the Bible says this, Acts chapter 8, "'On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria.'" Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. The link may not be easy to see, but remember... Philip left Jerusalem because of persecution. This was not, you know, like, oh, somebody said something mean. People were being thrown into prison, and Philip's good friend, Stephen, had just been murdered for his faith in Christ. That's the kind of persecution and pain going on in Philip's life, in his heart, in his spirit right now. And it's what drives him to leave Jerusalem. He may even feel like a failure for having to flee. He has every reason to despair. And no obvious reason to have joy. But you see, the passage we just read straight up says that it was because of the persecution of the church in Jerusalem that joy came to Samaria by way of Philip. In his case, when one of God's people got squeezed, joy came out and spread. I mean, how is it that joy came out in Samaria through Philip, even though he went down there in fear for his life and grieving The loss of his friend. The joy of the Lord is not dependent upon happy circumstances. Suffering and persecution could not stop the spread of God's joy. In fact, from this and many other examples we see in God's kingdom, suffering is often the catalyst or the stimulus or the the reagent for joy. If this sounds wrong to you, it may be that you're still thinking about happiness instead of joy. Let me make a clear statement. When it comes to the life of a follower of Jesus, suffering is not the cause of happiness, but suffering is the revealer of joy. Suffering is not the cause of happiness, but it's the revealer of joy. Look back again in what we just read from Acts 8. What if persecution did not come against the church? They would not have scattered. And if they had not scattered, joy would not have come to the region of Samaria. Further, if there had not been persecution, perhaps the people of God would have started to confuse happiness with joy. Hmm. If they hadn't experienced persecution in the church, they might have started to confuse happiness with joy. Maybe the church would have thought they deserved or had been promised happy circumstances in return for following Christ. Do you think that ever happens today? And when that happens, joy remains unrevealed. Maybe those first believers would not have known that they had something so powerful as joy if trouble had not wrecked their happiness. Listen, the truth is that joy can be very difficult to see in the midst of happiness. But when joy emerges against the backdrop of suffering, the people of God are astounded by the Spirit and they remember once more what they have actually received in Christ. Meanwhile, the world takes notice. That's exactly why James, the brother of Jesus, tells us, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. What a strange statement. For those who do not yet have the biblical understanding that joy is best seen with the cross as a backdrop. The joy is revealed best through difficult, unhappy, even painful times. Followers of Jesus are called to embrace not only the fact that joy is independent of happy circumstances, but actually that joy is best seen and understood when happiness is not possible. Notice also that this is an instructive command from James. What would be the point of giving us these instructions to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials if doing so were automatic? No, this is far from automatic, even for the true follower of Christ. You'll need to keep in mind throughout this series that by your own will, you can either squelch the joy of the Lord or you can let it shine forth. Amazingly, the Spirit of God within you will allow Himself to be quenched. As a believer... The power to be joyful, even through horrific circumstances, is in you, but not all of us have learned to apply it. Some of us are pretty good at keeping the joy of the Lord locked somewhere down deep inside. We're quite practiced at it. We, we have a persona to keep up, after all, and a story and a narrative to, to, to further. We have a way of making sure we fit in with the negativity and the despondency and depression of this world. Sometimes we even become addicted to sympathy, don't we? Scripture tells us to practice joy in the hard times. But no, we would rather receive pity. And make no mistake, this is only natural. But brothers and sisters, we're not called to be natural. Let's go back to the Old Testament for a moment from Psalm 118. You probably heard the first and the last part, but have you ever put it all together? From verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in His eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. First realize that these words were written about a thousand years prior to Jesus. Okay, this this is what we call prophecy. The psalmist was referring to a future event. Something um, that would be marvelous. Something that would be God's doing. Most of you probably have heard and maybe have memorized verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But have you ever thought about the specific day referred to in that famous verse? This verse prophetically refers to the day when Jesus died on the cross. Look at it in context. When the psalmist prophesied about the stone which the builders would reject and which would nonetheless become the chief cornerstone of the church, he was pointing toward Jesus and to the very day he would be rejected and to the day that he would, would, would sacrifice and become the foundation of our faith. So it was a prophecy about the day Jesus would be crucified. The day the Lord has made is the day of the greatest sacrifice in history. And he says, this is the day in which to rejoice and be glad. The day the cornerstone was rejected is the day talking about in that verse. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus quotes this very passage to refer to himself. He knows this day is about to come, and he's soon to be rejected and crucified. This truth is also referenced in the book of Acts, 1 Peter, and Ephesians. But let me just give you the reference in Acts, which says, for Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures, where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. So while we can certainly understand that we are to rejoice in each and every day because the Lord made them all, that is not really what this verse is saying. In this verse, the day we're commanded to rejoice and be glad in is the very day Jesus died on the cross, the day the stone that the builders, that the builders rejected. We're to rejoice in his sufferings because it is by his suffering that we are healed. To rejoice is simply the f- verb form of, of the word joy. We'll be seeing that word a lot in this series. It, it literally means to outwardly express joy, to rejoice. Notice the prefix re. This is to receive joy from the Lord and, and, and like a signal repeater in telecommunications to, to take what we have received and send it out to others. In one sense to rejoice is to recycle or repeat joy and not, not, not just any joy, but the joy of the Lord. Here the psalmist says we should rejoice with God in the day he made for Jesus to pay the price for our sin on the cross. You see, this is, this is consistent with the rest of Scripture where joy is not linked with perfect circumstances. Wasn't really a happy day we're talking about here where Jesus died. It's not linked with perfect circumstances. Rather, it's very much linked with pain and sacrifice. As mentioned, the, word cannot ex- the world cannot experience this kind of joy, or do they understand it? That's the, all the more reason believers must understand it and must practice it. Because if you haven't noticed, many people are looking to the church today and asking, what's the point? You know, they're not seeing anything all that different or appealing. Whose fault is that? So you say, okay, pastor, I get that joy is best seen in the life of a believer who is facing tough times. But what does that joy really look like? I mean, if it doesn't necessarily look like happiness, then what does it look like? Great question. Joy looks like the ability to keep your head up because of the presence of God in your life. Joy looks like a person who has experienced victory, only the victory hasn't come yet. Joy looks like bouncing back after you get down. Joy means you can genuinely smile at someone who has recently hurt you. Joy means you may well have moments of laughter, even though uh, something terrible recently happened. Not because you don't care, but because you simply cannot stay down in the depths of despair for very long. You can only cry so many tears because you have an eternal perspective that says even death has no victory through Christ. We might even say this, to have joy is to be inappropriately happy. Does this mean that a person who Or a person does not have joy if they admit being down. Does it mean Christians are not allowed to mourn or to cry their eyes out when life hurts? Not at all. It means that no matter how low you go or feel, you do not stay there. And you do not dwell there. And you do not begin to define yourself by depression or sadness, but that tomorrow you move forward with a spark in your eye. And that even when things are painful, you're still able to help someone else. Ultimately, joy means you find peace and hope in things that you cannot see. Listen, joy does not mean that nothing gets you down, but joy does mean that nothing keeps you down. It was joy that helped Jesus endure the cross, and it was joy that brought him up from the grave. Hallelujah. i to spend just a few moments talking about the context of the book of Philippians as I continue to kind of set up this upcoming series. What was going on as Paul wrote this book, the joy book of the Bible? What were the circumstances around the book? I mentioned that Paul was in prison, chained up uh, as he wrote it. But how do I know that Paul was actually in chains? Well, for one thing, it was the practice of the time. If you were in a dungeon, you were in chains. Uh, But it was part of their punishment. But secondly, we know that he wrote the book while imprisoned in Rome um, during the same time when he wrote the book of Colossians. We know that from the text. He wrote it at the same time as the book of Colossians. And he closed the book of Colossians with these words. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. He's saying, hey, folks, um, sorry if this is tough to read, but I do have chains shackled to my wrist, so give me a break on my penmanship, if you would. And this is not the first time Paul had worn chains. Do you know where he had last been arrested, last time he had had chains before Rome? It was Philippi. Remember the story where Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown in stocks, and that night they were singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening. The, uh, and then there was this earthquake, and, and um, you know the chains fell off, and the, and the doors opened, uh, but they didn't leave. And the jailer and his family became followers of Christ and were baptized. You can read all of that in Acts chapter 16's great story. But for now, take note that the prison in that scene was in the city of Philippi. The Philippian church, which brought Paul such joy, had been born in the town where he had last been beaten, chained, and imprisoned. I don't know how you think, how would you feel about a town where that happened to you? you know. All, all that being the case, Paul opens his letter to them with the words, beginning of Philippians, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. I always pray for you and I make my requests with a heart full of joy because you've been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time he first heard it until now. Now, by the way, as Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians from his cell in Rome, Emperor Nero has come to power. And this, the worst of the persecution against Christians is in its early stages. At this point, John the baptizer has already been, been beheaded by Herod Antipas. The, the apostle James has been killed with a sword by Herod Agrippa. And in some cases, the Bible says whole Christian families are being dragged off and thrown into prison. At this point in time, Christian leaders are in serious danger of martyrdom at any time. And there's the imminent fear that Rome will declare Christianity to be an illegal religion, which would basically mean they could be killed on sight. And that is eventually what happened, leading to unbelievable atrocities. And don't forget what happened to Paul on his way to this current imprisonment. In Rome, As he's writing this, what just happened? Immediately prior to his writing Philippians, Paul experienced a very long uh, voyage by ship during which they completely lost their way. There was a horrible storm. They, they had to throw aside the chip, ship's tackle. They drifted for weeks. They were starving to death. They ran out of food. They were about to eat each other and they're saved by cannibalism through a shipwreck and they almost drown getting to shore. After on shore, Paul gets bitten by a viper, which had to have hurt pretty bad, but he doesn't die, and that leads to him being able to witness powerfully to the people there, and many accept Christ. After the soldier in charge found another ship, and and the weather got better, they continued their journey to the dungeon in Rome, and that's where we find Paul chained up and writing joyful letters to churches like the one at Philippi. And he writes in Philippians 2, verse 17, But even if my life is to be poured out like a drink offering to complete the sacrifice of your faithful service, that is, if I'm to die for you, I will rejoice. And I want to share my joy with all of you. And you should be happy about this. And rejoice with me. About what? About him possibly dying. In case case he dies, I want you to be happy about it. Rejoice with me. You know, at this point, we should probably be asking ourselves, Is this guy nuts? I mean... What kept Paul going? Before he came to Christ, he had it all. He was an up-and-coming religious leader with a prominent name, having studied under a famous teacher, having plenty of position, power, and possessions to be happy. He wore a fancy robe, religious regalia that told everybody he was really pretty important. Jesus got a hold of his life, and everything just kept getting better, right? After he came to Christ? No. No. In fact, it was all pretty much a train wreck from that point on, but not really, only on the outside. Because even though the circumstances of his life got worse, clearly God gave him what he needed to get through. And part of what God gave him was joy. Joy worth more than all the suffering that went with it. How could Paul continue to minister joy to people while the shackles cut into his wrists? While his back was still healing from beatings? While his body was still recovering from from famine and drought, while he was still eating prison food, and had no possessions to his name. He had no wife to comfort him. He had no children to fulfill him. He had no drugs to make him forget, feel empty euphoria. He had no hope of worldly success. He had no money-making career, no regular salary, no esteemed position, no house with a fenced-in yard and flowering trees. All he had was a deep abiding faith in Jesus Christ. How could the Apostle Paul not have been broken by now? How could he say things like what he said in Philippians chapter 4, always be full of joy in the Lord? I say it again, rejoice. How could he say, whatever happens, dear brothers and sisters, may the Lord give you joy. Never get tired of telling you this, I'm doing this for your own good. How could he write from the dungeon, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed and hungry or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Maybe you don't think you could be like the Apostle Paul. Maybe you don't think you could still have joy if you went through everything he did. You know what? I think you're wrong. If you really know Jesus, I think you could. If you really know Jesus, I believe you may be selling yourself short in the area of joy. That may very well be your biggest problem. See, we just don't know what kind of joy we're capable of in Him. Most of us don't know what it's like to lose every worldly thing we have, to go through more than we think anyone could bear, and to still love Jesus and to still have joy. Most of us don't know how faith can grow through the worst kinds of trials. A few may have tasted it, but most of us don't know this like Paul knew it. Most of us have have never been squeezed hard enough until the joy of the Lord came out. Some got squeezed and found out they never really had it. Listen, if you truly have given your heart and life to Christ, the Holy Spirit is the giver of joy that comes out when you are squeezed the hardest. This is joy unquenchable. It's joy that cannot be restrained. Joy that can't be thwarted. It can't be doused. You can't tone it down or make it go away. This joy will endure. This joy will remain. If not, you need to check to see if you ever really put your faith in Christ in such a way as to receive the Holy Spirit. But that's another sermon. (laughs) The only thing in this world that can diminish the joy of the Lord in a believer, are you ready for this? The only thing that can diminish the joy of the Lord in a believer is worldly comfort. Extreme difficulty cannot destroy it but a life of ease can make joy almost invisible. When we do not take up our cross and follow our suffering Savior, our joy can become imperceptible. But even then, it's still there. When times are good, your joy may be like a candle in the light of day. It's there, but you don't really notice it. But when, when things are their worst, the joy of the Lord will shine out like, out like a candle in a cave. And it's amazing how one tiny little flame can fill a huge cavern with light. Never underestimate the joy of the Lord. Or really, I should say the presence of the Holy Spirit in general. Instead, count on it. Look for it when things are hard. Fan it to flame. Let it out with the boldness to be inappropriately happy in the eyes of the watching world. Paul's joy was nothing he could manufacture. It was the joy of the Lord. All he could do was get out of the way and focus on Christ within. But when he did that, joy came flowing out. I think a memorable illustration might be helpful as I wrap up. So let me show you what I mean. Normally I would do this live, but as you will see, that would have been a disaster in this room. So take a look. This is your life. This is the joy. those there's just something about the joy of the Lord that wants to overflow. And the joy of the Lord is really in your life, it wants to bubble over. And I promise you that if I had shaken up that bottle of soda, the joy would have erupted even more. That's when you find out what's really inside of stuff, you know? When you shake it up. What comes out when you get shaken up? Is it joy? Or something else. During this series we're going to look at several secrets to letting the joy of the Lord bubble out of our lives. The good news is that the joy of the Lord is already inside of us as those who have turned to Christ. He's already given us his joy. It's already in there. We just need to learn how to let it out. We're about to discover some potent truths from the book of Philippians that will help us take the caps off our lives so that we can see joy overflow, especially in tough times. This could be big. This could be huge in your life, in the life of this church. You need this. We need this. So I hope you make a commitment to be here for this short series because I really do believe God has some powerful things to teach us about joy. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church, or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.